CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. We are here to bring you the latest and greatest in crypto news for the day. I'm Jen Sinassi. We've got Danny Nelson on the show today. We've got Will Foxley, how are you guys doing? Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Okay, well, I can see you guys are very, very happy on this Wednesday. Let's talk about some news then, shall we? (laughs) Binance, some big news coming out of Binance. They plan to re-enter Japan in August. This is made possible by the exchange's purchase of regulated exchange, Secura Exchange, Bitcoin, all while the firm withdraws its German crypto license application. I feel like Binance has been doing a little bit of a regulatory dance in which countries they're deciding to operate in and which ones they are deciding to pull out from. Uh, I could take it if that's okay. We're seeing Binance pulling out of the German market or rather stopping its attempt to get back into that market at the same time as it's going right back into the Japanese market that it left two years ago. So it's not so much a decision of Binance as to whether it should or shouldn't play, as it is the regulator's decision. In Germany, it seems to have read the writing on the wall and decided, well, we're not going to make it through here. Just like in uh, now Belgium and the Netherlands and Austria, we're going to stop applying for this license and get out of Dodge before the regulator tells us to hit the road. Whereas in Japan, after two years of non-compliance or being on the sideline, Binance has succeeded in getting back into that market after getting the proper regulatory clearance. So Will, I'll throw it over to you. What's your take? Binance is making moves. So we have this announcement with Japan. We'll talk about the one in Germany in a second. Japan news, of course, is huge. Japan is one of the largest economies in the world. And the fact that it's been very difficult for Binance to enter into that area after the two-year hiatus uh, just speaks to the fact that the Japanese regulators have taken crypto very seriously. Huge anecdote here within this realm is FTX Japan. When it was forced to wind down with the shutter of FTX Global, all the users of FTX Japan got their money outright. Uh, They just easily liquidated it. Everything was done correctly and securely for users, so no one took any losses. That's compared to a lot of the other FTX Global institutions that were out there and the FTX US and FTX International, which are still going through the Chapter 11 proceedings and people are crossing their fingers that they get 10 cents on the dollar. And I think that just speaks to how Japan has taken 
regulation very seriously. Uh, they are focused on reserves. They are focused on making sure that everyone who comes into Japan into the digital asset sector does register with the government, so they have a face to the business that's operating here. Binance had to pull out two years ago, and now they're going to be able to step in by purchasing another exchange. And this is a pretty common tactic, right? Where you maybe don't want to go through like all the heaps,、uh, all the hurdles and leaps to be able to get into a new jurisdiction. So you go and purchase someone who already has all the licensing. And then you just replace the business entirely with your own, and that's what it looks like here. Pretty smart move. I don't know if we brought up the Germany news, but I might just bring it up anyways. Which is Binance is pulling out of Germany after deciding that it doesn't want to pursue its licensing with Bafin, Germany's financial provider. This, of course, follows after their decision to move out of both Netherlands and a few other countries within Europe、uh, due to stricter licensing regimes in those countries. Jen. I think Binance's lawyers are very, very hard at work here,、uh, trying to navigate, of course, the lawsuit in the U.S., but also figuring out where they can operate without being struck down by the financial regulators. There, there are some comments in the article on Germany that said the situation, both in the global market and regulation, has changed significantly. Binance still intends to apply for appropriate licensing in Germany, but it is essential that our submission accurately reflects these changes. I feel like there are some strategic decisions being made here. Will, just like you mentioned, you know, the acquisition of a firm that's already regulated in Japan is a nice way for Binance to continue operating in some way, shape, or form in the country. And I think that you know, there's a lot of weighing of the pros and cons of staying in certain countries and leaving certain countries, or staying on the sidelines and waiting to see what regulators are going to do in certain jurisdictions. I think it's important to note. In June, CZ said that France will remain the flagship center in Europe for Binance, and that's despite the money laundering probe that's going on there.、Um, I think that's kind of indicative of how exchanges might be looking at the European Union under new regulation that's coming out. Of course, once there was new regulation in the EU in 2024, exchanges or firms will just need one license to operate across the entire. Block, which I think will be interesting. I think we're going to see maybe even more exchanges flock to Europe and try try and get licensed there. But that's my take on Binance. You know, they're still keeping their head above water despite these these headlines that come out with them. I would say, like you know, on a weekly basis now, more than a weekly basis. Danny, any final words here? Yeah, it's definitely a lot of headlines that you don't want to see if you're an exchange operator. But、mm-hmm. you know, in the German market specifically, for those who are already in the door, they seem to be getting a little more bullish. Just yesterday, Coinbase announced that it would、uh, list a number of tokens, including Arbitrum's token and Helium's token, in、uh, Germany for its German customers. You know, that's not a game-changing business decision, but it does indicate that their lawyers and their teams have decided that the environment in Germany is、uh, is well enough for them to move ahead with these token listings. So they're trying to capitalize on this market that Binance has decided it it can't play in. So we are seeing this reshuffling. Globally, it makes you wonder if Coinbase can and will grow to the point that Binance plays, where it really is the the keeper of the gates, the, the gatekeeper, if you will, for uh, uh, global crypto volumes. I don't know if we'll get there anytime soon, but I'm sure that Brian Armstrong would like that mantle. All right, we will have to wait and see what happens there. But let's head off to Nigeria.、Mm. They are changing the model for their CBDC, the E Naira, to promote more use. In an effort to push for broader adoption, the Central Bank of Nigeria has updated their app to enable contactless payments. The bank hadn't responded to a request for more information 
at press time. A lot going on in Nigeria around the use of this CBDC. I know we've spoken about it a few times on the show, but Will, what do you what do you make of this? Do you think that an update on the app is going to be what it takes to get Nigerians really behind the Inaira? It's going to take a little bit longer than that, a little more than that as well. I, a lot of people don't realize this, but Nigeria has one of the most vibrant tech sectors in all of Africa and just globally. Uh, Jack Dorsey himself, a creator of Twitter and also the CEO of Block, has long held aspirations to move over to Nigeria, move over to Africa full time. Why? Because there's a lot of people who think just like him over there. And so he wanted to make the move. And so you see that side of things with the tech. On the other side of things, the Nigerian government has this desire to move into the CBDC landscape, whether that's because of incentives on controlling monetary policy or because they want to do something with remittances. Nigeria has a very large remittance market. It's hard to tell. Uh, at the basis, though, you have to look at like how this is rolling out compared to other countries. It does seem to be moving faster than other countries. I mean, they're talking about changes to their mobile wallet while the U.S. is still debating if we're even going to have a CBDC, right? So there's two different arguments here. And I, I think the one thing that we should like point out is that a lot of people in Nigeria are not going to be able to use this mobile wallet because they're still on a cash-based economy, especially eastern parts of the country, which are still very far removed away from using a mobile wallet for any sort of payment, right? It's a cash-based economy, maybe even payment in kind. So it's, a little, it's weird to look at this, this economy and think of how a CBDC could be fit in here. But there are definitely portions of the economy where this could be a big use case. That being said, the volumes and the amount of people using it are pretty low. Uh, this article does mention like wallet count. So it's about like 13 million wallets or so are open uh, in the country. Wallet counts are not a great metric, of course, though, because anyone can open a wallet and just make tons of them. So you, you have a hard time understanding who's uh, assigned to a wallet. It could be one person with a thousand wallets or one person with one wallet. Uh, at the end of the day, these are still very small numbers, uh, but they're, they're iterating at the very least. Danny? Yeah. And to get that true growth for uh, any CBDC or any e-commerce payment for that matter, Nigeria is going to have to rethink the way that its basic economy works. There's a huge sector of it. I think it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars in the informal economy that is cash-based. And that's because merchants and vendors and these small-time businesses, they're not set up to take anything other than a cash payment. And having a CBDC requires two things. It requires you to have the technology to accept it. And also for you to be interacting with other businesses that make it worth your while to even take this form of money. So in order for this uh, really to catch fire in, in Nigeria, the entire economy is going to have to have a lot more uh, digital infrastructure put in place whether that's through mobile phone uh, proliferation or just through point-of-sale kiosks. Uh, that's going to be the key to even thinking about making this a successful product in Nigeria. Yeah, you both mentioned the informal economy, and the number for that is the country has a $220 billion informal economy that's mostly run on, on cash. There's little infrastructure built out for use of the Enira, you know, for, for vendors who are incorporated in this $220 billion number when we talk about that economy. So I think that there is definitely a long road ahead here. I read the story and I think back to March when we were seeing protests over the Enira and the protests kind of were twofold. They took into account this cash shortage. So there's a limit on how much Nigerians or there was a limit, at least I'm not sure if that's still in place on how much Nigerians could withdraw in cash on a daily basis as they were being pushed towards the e-Naira. And then the money was actually being redesigned so that uh, enhanced the shortfall of cash in the country. 
When that story came out back in March, it was reported that less than half a percent of Nigerians were using the CBDC, but more than 50% of Nigerians had used crypto before. So that points to a, a bigger problem for me than just infrastructure. It points to possibly, you know, distrust in the government and financial policy in the country. So I think that there are definitely a, a lot of roadblocks for Nigeria to overcome. But I do also think that other countries are probably watching what's happening with the Inaira, watching how the country rolls out the CBDC, uh, taking notes and learning for uh, CBDC projects in the Western world. Will, any final thoughts here? Yeah, Maybe this is just the country to watch probably with, uh, in terms of CBDC development. So keep an eye on Nigeria. We are talking about DeFi, and it's not going to be that exciting or rather not that happy a discussion because we're talking about new seven-month lows. That's right. The DeFi sector is getting pummeled. Uh, we're seeing it fall to seven-month lows in terms of, total, uh, in terms of volume because uh, there's just been this massive drop-off in activity in wallets interacting with protocols, not getting hacked. And so there's a couple of uh, things that are feeding into this drawdown. One is the fact that protocols continue to lose money to hackers, whether that's through maybe more sophisticated North Korean attacks on bridges, or just through really simple re-entrancy attacks that the protocols, these lending and trading markets really should be uh, protected against. Well, they're not. And maybe that's leading to lower consumer confidence. Regardless, it's definitely leading to lower volumes. And it's not just being seen in the Ethereum ecosystem. In Solana too, there's been a drop-off. Now, I think it's worth noting that some protocols are having more success in weathering this storm than others. In Solana, at least, a couple of protocols are achieving higher volumes recently by rolling out new systems such as points that would incentivize people to use them. But it's not actually bringing new money into crypto, the crypto ecosystem, into DeFi. It's just having the existing money sloshed from one place to the next. That's not really a sustainable form of growth because it's not growth at all. So, Will, I'll start with you. What's your take on the DeFi drawdown? Yeah, the reentrancy attacks and other hacks are definitely a, a way of uh, losing consumer confidence, as you put it there, Danny, which is probably one of my favorite phrases I've heard along with DeFi. I mean, this is like the realm of DGENs, right? Where people kind of play to lose money in many instances. They're not too curious about that, but we are seeing a lot of loss in confidence in DeFi right now. I talked to a DeFi founder a few months ago about the secular decline in interest in DeFi, as he put it. Um, mostly that we're seeing total volume locked or TVL, the common metric for understanding how many crypto assets and the dollars value of those things are within the DeFi ecosystem. And it's continually dropping over time. I mean, we're not seeing like the steady cliffs or the, the cliffs that we saw last year in 2022 with the fall of so many of these ecosystems. We're just seeing money slowly slide out of these things and hacks and breaks of bridges and stuff like that does take money out a little bit more quickly than necessarily people withdrawing their money. But overall, there is a decline in interest in DeFi, which is leading to a decline in the amount of value within DeFi. Uh, we're almost back to that $1 billion market that you mentioned there, which back in, uh, I believe it was early 2020 is when we broke through that $1 billion threshold. That was a huge deal for the DeFi market. The fact that uh, this many people were, were there willing to participate in this new uh, leg for Ethereum, right? It's a huge deal. And now we're kind of going back down. I think this is just symptomatic, however, of the larger market. There's not a lot of interest in protocols. There's not a lot of interest in yield. There's not a lot of interest in the new app or DAP that's being designed. And that's just where we are at in the cycle right now. 
And that's okay. For right now, there's still people building stuff. A lot of treasuries actually took good use of their money this last cycle, moving into stable coins or assets that were more, more robust than the ICO era. I do think that we see this going back up right in the near future. But right now, it's definitely a secular decline. Okay, I have some things to ponder. And you two can ponder with me or just leave me to question the universe on my own. Um, I think when I read this article, I thought about, you know, first of all, regulatory uncertainty. So we spoke about Binance maybe, you know, on the sidelines waiting to see what happens with regulation in different jurisdictions. I feel like consumers, people who participate in the DeFi ecosystem, maybe people who are intrigued by different um, aspects of DeFi are also maybe sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what happens with regulation, not only in the US, but abroad as well. You know, DeFi came up in some drafts of Mika regulation in the EU. We have the Lama Stillebrand bill here in the US that's looking to define DeFi. And so I think, you know, people who operate in DeFi every day, Danny, like you mentioned, they're probably there and funds are being sloshed around. But I think newcomers might be just watching what's happening and waiting to see what happens from a regulatory perspective. And I don't know. I, I know in our next story, we're going to talk about VC participation in DeFi. But do you both think that maybe VCs that right now who may have bought up tokens, who may have been investing in projects, might be looking at things like AI for the exact reason that consumers might be, like regulatory atmosphere? Yeah, really quick. I got fact check myself. I got my numbers confused. So there's one billion dollars around. Opine with me. In, well, I will. I will in a <laughs> okay. moment. There's one billion dollars transactional volume, but TVL has dropped from 45 billion to about 43 billion in July. Uh, so definitely a significant slide there, but not as significant as I was stating earlier. I will say some of these VCs, they're sitting on the sidelines partly because they have to. They agreed to multi-year token lockups and their their valueless tokens are just sitting there inaccessible for the time being as they wait to get their hands on it. And then with that moved uh, toward AI, I don't know if that's specifically the reason why we're seeing uh, DeFi in particular losing a lot of uh, volume and a lot of value, but it's certainly a reason why some of the existing venture investors who aren't so eager to jump into risky crypto investments are just as eager to throw their money at risky AI investments because it's the the new bell at the ball, so to speak. It's the hot new thing. And there's a lot more upside that they see right now in betting on this brand new industry as opposed to the one that's associated with FTX and all these blowouts in the last year or so. Yeah, just to jump in there on what Jen was saying. I think there's still interest in DeFi. I do think that the DeFi market did make a mistake, which the ICO era did as well, which is it's very difficult to launch a token, sustain interest in it. It's very difficult to get the tokenomics right. So a lot of these DeFi protocols became failures because of their early success with these tokens. I still think that there's people who want to invest in this paradigm. For instance, just put out a notice uh, this last week stating that they have a bunch of different topics that are interested in investing in the seed stage. And that included some DeFi-esque protocols, mostly dealing with L2s and MEV. So I think a lot of the infrastructure and the underlying stuff is where people are interested in, as opposed to some of the bigger projects like we saw last cycle, like lending protocols or anything of that sort in nature. Jen? I think we can talk about MakerDAO now. That's a great segue. A16Z? Yeah, it's time. A16Z Maker. It's time. Okay. That's good. Great transition. 16Z unloads $7 million of MKR tokens or the Maker token as the price source. This is according to blockchain analytics, essentially looking at the wallets are known by A16Z to hold MKR tokens 
They're transferred to a fresh address and then moved over Coinbase with the presumed selling of those tokens on Coinbase. Of course, once those tokens are on Coinbase, we don't have a look inside the actual engine itself. But you can assume that when people do move tokens onto an exchange, they're likely going to sell them as opposed to just hold them there. Uh, of course, A16Z has been a longtime proponent and holder of MKR. Uh, they purchased these tokens as far back as 2018. Why are they selling these tokens? Well, it really comes down to a new proposal uh, by MakerDAO's Rune Christensen talking about endgame for MakerDAO. Can it be further decentralized or not? He proposed an idea to further decentralize MakerDAO by spinning up even more DAOs to control different aspects and elements within the largest decentralized stablecoin machine, MakerDAO. And A16Z didn't really like it. So it looks like they're taking their bag, just going to sell it right when the price is not doing too shabby at all. Danny? Yeah, I got to say, as someone who covers DAOs often, a DAO being on top of other sub-DAOs, it's a thing that exists. It's just uh, these extrapolations and these complexities just make things harder to accomplish in crypto because crypto governance is really difficult. And I can't blame A16Z for hearing something like that and thinking, Mel, maybe it's time that we sell the local top, uh, move on. Because it's uh, if if you're seeing the market rally and you have an opportunity to unload part of your position, well, uh, from a fiduciary from a fiduciary uh, perspective, it might be the right thing to do. So A16Z here, uh, they've unloaded seven million. I saw on chain that they had sent 0.5 maker to another new wallet recently. And that might be a signal that they're getting ready to move some more because there are those little test transactions, I have to say, I remember back from when I first got into Bitcoin. If you don't want to send the whole Bitcoin at once, you don't want to send the whole, the whole token position at once because you're not so sure you have the address right, the first thing you do is you send a little bit as a little test just to make sure you have the numbers correct. So A6CZ has done that again. There might be more movements uh, coming. Jen, I'll toss it over to you. Yeah, no, I agree with both of you. There was some tension there um, when this endgame plan was published and A16Z said that the DAO was adequately decentralized. But in some way, A16Z, to me, selling these tokens makes the DAO even more decentralized, right? They they have less tokens. That means they have less say in, in some of these votes moving forward. And I have to note that A16Z said the reason why they didn't support these sub-DAOs was largely because of regulatory concerns, you know, having regulators understand what's going on. I think, um, and this is not what they said. This is now me thinking based on those comments. I think that you, you have a DAO, you have regulators trying to understand what's going on with, with DAOs. How do they regulate it? How do we oversee these ecosystems that have tokens and, and tokenomics? And now you introduce sub DAOs and it just kind of further complicates things when we're in a very complicated time in our history. So I think that this makes sense. Denny, um, to your point, they may be selling off the rest of their tokens, but I believe that they still have just under 2% left. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with those. Let's leave the show on that note. It's been a wonderful Wednesday show. Thank you for listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network and watching us on Coindesk TV. I'm Jen Sinassi. That's Will Foxley beside me and Danny Nelson beside him. We hope you have a great day and we'll see you tomorrow at the same time and same place. Bye. 
You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.